Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 86. This week, we talk with Karen McGrain about responsive design, 7 Essential JavaScript Functions, and why you shouldn't bother creating a mobile app. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. Today we're talking to Karen McGrain. On a good day, she makes the web more awesome, and on a bad day, she just makes it suck less. That is an awesome intro, Karen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. So oh, the it's way, a yeah, the way that we found you, um, our guest last week, uh, Brian Munzemeyer, He's actually a longtime friend of the show. He's he's a uh, responsive design fanatic, and and he's he's just really big into design and, and a lot of different. Um, um, you know, types of design things on the, on the web. And I've known him for years. And I said, who is the number one person to talk to on this topic? And we got your name. And, uh, so we reached out. So we're really happy to have you. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. And please give him my thanks as well. Very happy to hear. <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. So Carl, we have a new theme song, which probably, uh, I think threw people off last week. Yes. Uh, we actually added that after we recorded the last show. We found out that we could use uh, this song, 8-Bit Adventure by Adhesive Wombat. Yep. So so if you go to soundcloud.com slash Adhesive Wombat, you can check out the full length of that as well as any other stuff that he does. Mm -hmm. uh, he's letting anybody who wants to use it, use it for free with attribution. So that's awesome. Thank you a lot. It's a really awesome uh, uh, song that I think really complements everything else that we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I asked one person, uh, that I know that listens to the show. I said, I said, what do you think? And he goes, yeah, I took my phone out of my pocket. Cause I didn't, I didn't think I had the right show. <laughs> that was, that was our only concern with switching the, uh, the intro. Uh, so what do we have for feedback, Carl? So, uh, for feedback this week, uh, is from Igor Kuhlman. He reached out to us on Twitter after we had announced that our, uh, Microsoft band web tile was in the Microsoft health gallery. Uh, he reached out to us, um, finding out better ways how to debug his own web tile and uh, getting some uh, dev questions out. And uh, LV, uh, or Ali V uh, mm -hmm. actually reached out to him as well as part of that Twitter conversation to get this all done. And it sounds like he's going to get his web tile in the gallery as well. So if you weren't even aware of it, there is a gallery for the web tiles. These aren't things that you just put on your website and hope people find. Microsoft will collect them and... Uh, give you a little bit more exposure for them as well. And people look at this gallery. So I was talking to somebody else here on the Microsoft campus, uh, not the same person I was talking about the theme song. I was talking to him about the band and he actually said, Hey, I saw your, t your web tile in the gallery. So people are, are looking at that because it's front and center right in the, uh, right in the band application. So I thought that was really, really cool. So it's really discoverable. Yes, and uh, for your conversation with us, Igor, you win the Infragistics Ultimate License this week. And if you yourself would like to get mentioned on the show and have a chance to win the Infragistics Ultimate Ultimate License, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Uh, send us a comment on uh, Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, even on our website in the comment section. So, Carl, you almost forgot. Uh, you almost let me forget that it's your birthday. Yes. <laughs> so, happy birthday, Carl. Yes. Happy birthday, I, Carl. I'm, 
Yeah. Uh, somebody asked me how old I was, and I actually looked it up on uh, on uh, Wolfram Alpha. I am the median age of the uh, average American in the U.S. <laughs> oh, so it's like an exercise for the reader to figure out what that is. Then that's pretty. Yes, cool. <laughs> but I'm at I'm at the top of the bell curve. It's all downhill <laughs> from all here. All downhill. Yeah. So you so you're middle age, and now you got to have like a midlife crisis or something. <laughs> oh, sorry to hear that, Carl. But happy birthday, Carl. Thanks. Okay, so let's get into the news. So what do we got here? We only we only got a couple stories here, uh, but they're good ones. So the first one here, why.net, and I haven't read this one, so you have to help me out here, Carl. So this was a uh, company called Pangea Engineering, and they were explaining why they used, they chose Microsoft uh, technology, and it's not because they like .net or Microsoft. Um, what I liked about this article is they went behind their thinking of things that they were looking for. They wanted somebody that uh, was open source and um, they want uh, uh, technology that was statically typed so you, uh, that had strong tooling mm-hmm. that was mature but yet modern, uh, had a reach ecosystem, and was also a strong steward. And yeah. going on that, they really came down to just a couple of contenders. Uh, there's, of course, Microsoft with .NET, Oracle with Java, and Google's Go. And they looked at it and like, Go still is kind of young and immature. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and it just doesn't have the, it doesn't, at least at this point, doesn't have the same uptake for sure. Well, as well as Google isn't always a good steward either. They, they tend to just chop things mm-hmm. up with, with no recourse on, uh, you know, holding on to whatever assets that you may have yeah. put into that ecosystem. Um, there was also Oracle has not been the greatest steward of Java, really put a lot of people um, off by how they've been handling that, as well as not keeping it up to date uh, with keeping it modern. Which really left Microsoft really checked all of those boxes that they were looking for, mm-hmm. and and what I liked about this article, and they really go into their thinking, is that they had that criteria from the outset, and this is really how we should all be thinking of our technology choices, and they found the technology that fit their needs and corporate culture. I think they're missing one of the most important things, which is availability of talent. I mean, that's the other thing, right? So. If you go, you know, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere, but you pick, uh, you know, Wisconsin and you try to, you know, hire some, some go developers. Good luck with that. <laughs> there's probably, exactly. you know, there's, I'm sure there's a fair number in the state, but none of them live near each other or, or they're, or they're all, they all do live near each other and they all work for the same place because that place happens to be the go employer, hmm. uh, Java and .NET on the other hand, I mean, you can find just a lot of experienced and .NET and Java developers. So I think they're, I think they're missing one of the best points there. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Seven essential JavaScript functions. So, um, I saw this from, uh, from Brandon Martinez and, um, this, this was pretty cool. I don't know what, what you wanted to comment on here, Carl. Do you want to talk about the specific functions? Uh, no, n- not necessarily, but you mm-hmm. know, I, a lot of us do JavaScript in some way, shape or form, whether it's, w- we're doing something on the web or even a lot of like node applications that are entirely, you know, internal. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can use JavaScript. It, nearly everybody comes in contact with it in their professional development careers in some way, shape, or yep. form. And no matter what you're doing, these are functions that aren't included, but you pretty much need for any application. And I think it's you know important to look at them and you know see if you're doing it, or maybe not even or doing it, but doing it in a less elegant way. Yeah, so there's like debouncing here, which I think is is kind of critical. Although a lot of things have that built in, but it's ne- it never hurts to look at how they actually function. Um, get absolute URL, 
um, yeah, there's some good stuff here. So, you know, it's code. So <laughs> everybody's just going to have to look at the show notes and, and check out these functions. They're, they're pretty good. Uh, let's see here. Why? Oh, this one was relevant. I included this one just because we we're going to have Karen on here. Um, but I saw this, uh, it was published five days ago. Uh, why you shouldn't be bother creating a mobile a mobile app. And honestly, this post was, was a bit of an advertisement. Um, you know, a lot of medium posts are like that where, you know, it's like, here's what we did and, you know, please check out our app. I thought this was kind of interesting though, because they created this, this, this app and, uh, and nobody wanted it. Like nobody was downloading it. It was, it was a really clever app. It was for taking a photo of receipts and, and doing expense reports and, and things like that. It was, I thought it was a, it was pretty neat what they were doing. Cause I think they're doing like some OCR and some, um, organizing of this data. And it was, it was kind of novel, but you know, again, they, they just, they weren't able to be found in these, in these app stores. People just weren't looking for this type of app and they just couldn't get any uptake. So what they ended up doing is they actually, um, remove the app from all the different app stores. And I actually get a kick out of this because at the bottom, they have like the, the, um, the Apple uh, <laughs> app store button at the bottom and also the Google play button down here. And, and it says unavailable in the app store, neither on Google play, uh, which I thought was kind of clever, but what they did is they actually, um, retooled their app and just made it basically a Slack service. So you, you don't have, you know, and it's basically an app that people already have, which is Slack. You can use it through Slack. You just enable it as a, as a, an integration for, for Slack. And you can, you know, post a photo into a, 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 you know, basically a Slack DM and it will do the same thing that the app used to do. And now they have to focus less on the app itself and they can focus more on the, the back end of what it does. And they, you know, they don't have to worry about distribution and versioning and, and all those crazy things that, that go along with, um, with that. So I just, I thought this was kind of interesting. There were um, some observations in here too. Um, you know, a lot of the the apps that get people's attention on mobile are uh, things that are using, you know, the sensors within the device um, or are just core things like messaging and email and, and photos and, and things like that. Um, but to, to kind of get out of those categories and, and to not use something that's really novel on the phone, like the GPS or, or something like that, um, they just see as, as being extremely difficult. I'm really fond of commenting that every single app on my home screen is something that, that requires authentication. I have to be logged into. Yeah. And it's something that I use quite regularly. Yep. And I think that the number of scenarios out there for businesses that are going to capture that kind of attention, that are going to provide a, a service that's going to be so important to my daily life and something that I will want to authenticate for truly personalized information, mm -hmm. those are rare. And yeah. honestly, I think that the, while, while I see web and apps as complementary, they serve different needs. There mm -hmm. are plenty of scenarios under which apps make sense. I think that for many organizations, they have bought into some app craze that is just not, does not align well with the way that people actually interact with, with companies or want to use their devices. But Karen, all you have to do is make an app and you become a millionaire. Everybody knows that. <laughs> I mean, I keep, I am still waiting for the day that app stores become usable. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get started on, on iTunes or anything, but it, it's, <laughs> no, let's, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll take the whole rest of the show. Okay. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep this a short rant, but why is there no sort by rating? 
You know, isn't that like the mm-hmm. biggest oversight in in like the the Apple app stores and yeah. almost every app store that exists? It's like, here's what I'm looking for, and show me the one that's top rated. I mean, that's how we search for products. Why don't we search for apps that way? I, I will add that to my long list of problems <laughs> with the app store. I don't know if I'd say it's the top. <laughs> that's that's my that's my biggest uh, that's my biggest complaint. You know, because it it isn't even necessarily like the number of reviews. Like, the best app might be something that we that none of us use. Um, cause you know, I've talked about this all the time, like, you know, the whole, the whole going viral thing. I mean, I've put videos out there where you put it out there and it has one view and it was me. And how is that going to go viral? You know, cause it doesn't, it doesn't have sort of that kickstart to, to actually, um, get going. So there, there might be a lot of those apps in the app store. You just don't know. And we'll never see them. It's all, we're seeing the apps that are just spending ridiculous amounts of money to, to, you know, sort of buy their way into the, the top there. Okay. And rant. <laughs> well, I think that also uh, one thing that wasn't mentioned on you either when you're talking about money is how expensive applications are to develop, especially when you do oh, yeah. one for one for iOS and one for Android. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. I mean, if you can just the the overhead of making an app. I mean, I I made and and I don't. Um, well, whatever. I guess I, I'll say what I want to say. Um, you know, like I made an I made an Office 365 add-in, and the add-in is is literally. Um, you know, it's like five lines of XML and that was the easy, the, making the app was easy. The hard part is, is putting it into the store because you need a privacy policy and, you know, the things that you really should have, um, like I can understand why those are mandatory, but that, that becomes the difficult part of it. And what I, one of the reasons that I liked this article was, um, you know, we, we always think, you know, a lot of people think app first, but, um, I just thought this was a novel approach. I mean, if, if you really can put your service into a Slack channel and maybe, maybe, you know, look at if there's alternatives to Slack too, that have enough popularity to warrant that. But if you can turn your, your thing into a service that can just be integrated into something else that already commands, you know, like what Karen said, which is the, the front, uh, you know, an icon on the, the, fr- you know, on your home screen, um, that, that might be your, you know, the, the ticket to getting in and that might be how people want to use it. Okay. <laughs> let's uh so let's let's get to to talking to uh to karen um so like i said you know we we uh you were recommended by uh by a friend of ours and uh so i went out right away and i bought uh, we bought two copies of your book um it's called uh going responsive i have the title correct right um yeah because i only right. read the, the title once so i you know i got a i got a copy for carl I, I got a copy of it and i've been reading through it and this thing is great what i like about it is that this would be if if you're in an organization where you're you're trying to um you know, you're trying to get everybody on the same page as far as, as the, the best way to, um, you know, shift the mindset of your company. This is a great book. And I would recommend just, just buy a stack of these things and, and hand them out to, um, you know, everybody in your team. And then also basically up your, um, you know, up your org chart, um, you know, to, so that everybody in the chain has it. Cause I thought there was just a lot of really good content in there that really sells it to all of the stakeholders. Um, so that was one thing that I really liked about it. And I do have, I have some quotes that I, that I really liked out of the book, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of hold those off because we have some questions around those, um, specifically, but I think where we should probably start is really just defining responsive and then probably looking at, you know, some of these, these things that, that are not responsive that are different. So let's start with responsive and then we can talk about apps and M dot sites and adaptive solutions and those types of things. So one of the things that I like best about responsive web design is that it has a clear and consistent definition. 
So well, if you good. are using fluid grids and flexible images or flexible media mm -hmm. and media queries, then your website is responsive. Okay. And I think that when people talk about responsive, it's often set in, in contrast to the desktop website. So up until up until a few years ago, we all were operating under what Jeremy Keith likes to call a consensual hallucination that everybody browsed the web in the same way with the same size 1024 by 768 screen, the same mouse and the same bandwidth. And while that's never been true, we up until that point were able to design for one fixed width screen resolution and we had maybe a couple of browsers to consider. But we were really able to create static desktop websites, fixed with desktop websites. So responsive is often seen in contrast to desktop sites, but it's also, I think, in contrast to what's called the separate mobile website or an M.dot site. Mm -hmm. So you're undoubtedly familiar with, with websites that will redirect you over to you know, m.url.com. Oh, it's usually terrible. It's usually terrible. Uh, it's... What that is, in many ways, I, I often describe that as a stopgap measure. So mm -hmm. I've talked to lots of companies that realized, like, oh, my goodness, you know, our web traffic is, you know, our mobile traffic is, what, 5%, 10%, now 20% of our traffic? Oh, we've really got to do something. But for them to make the bigger decisions that it's going to take to pull off a, a good responsive site, perhaps to make some changes to their back end or their, their content management system or other publishing processes going to take them years to get there. So an MDOT site is a stopgap measure for them to go in, get something in place that's at least not terrible, and then take the time to really be thoughtful about their strategies for mobile. Other companies, like, like the ones we just talked about earlier in the hour, maybe they uh, got caught up in the app craze and decided to invest in rolling out perhaps questionable apps that no one was ever going to download. And now they're stuck with the, the problem of how do they move forward with a mobile strategy that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I hope I'm not giving anything away. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I picked this I, up from the title of the book that I think that should be responsive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a, I had a couple of co comments. So the first one is, is kind of interesting. You talked about the, the percentages, you know, like people start to see uptick in that. And it, what's interesting about that to me is it's, it seems like sort of a chicken and egg problem because you, um, you know, if you don't have a site that works on mobile at all, um, it's kind of, a, it seems to me kind of a miracle that people are going to your site. I, it's sort of a oh my uh, gosh. blessing in disguise, you know, cause you're actually getting that indicator. But I imagine there's a lot of sites too with, that, that do this whole thing where they're like, you know, we looked at our stats and nobody's viewing it on mobile. And the reason yeah. is cause their site <laughs> sucks on mobile, right? I think I, I don't have to have those conversations with companies so much anymore, yeah, but I, I think, three years ago. Yeah. Oh, like the number of meetings you'd go into where they where you'd say, okay, well, let's talk about mobile. And they'd say, oh, well, you know, only 5% of our traffic's coming from mobile devices. So who cares? <laughs> yeah, and they you're leave like, right away. They don't even like, do well, anything. <laughs> I think Jason Grigsby has a great quote where he says, you cannot predict future behavior from a current experience that sucks. Yeah. And I think that's true. If you're, Perfect. if you don't provide a good experience today, looking at those numbers doesn't really make sense. But today, most of the companies that I talk to are at about 50% mobile traffic. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I don't know how anybody in this day and age can ignore, if you can't, if you're not even looking at your data, how can you ignore the fact that you are glued to your phone every minute of the day and you sleep with it? It's first thing you pick up in the morning. Like <laughs> yeah. if that doesn't change your mind, I don't know what will. 
And it and it's ridiculous because like <laughs> I'm, I'm walking around. Every once in a while, I look up from my phone and I see like everybody around me is looking down at their phone. And it I know that it's ironic because I'm, <laughs> you know, I of course my reaction is to look back down at my phone. But uh, yeah, I mean everybody is is staring at their phone all day. So yeah, you're right. You can't ignore that. Um, you had you had a a really good quote from a slide that I saw in one of your presentations that I just wanted to call out. You said the web is not a laser printer, and that really resonated with me as well because I mean that's so true. Like you know, it's not that you know we have a standard size sheet of paper. It's eight and a half by eleven, right? Yeah. Um, and and we don't have that on the on the web. Um, everybody's operating on a different size sheet of paper. It's the the mental models around like publishing processes and you know what what it means to publish something are so rooted in print and they're so rooted mm-hmm. in um, like desktop publishing programs like WYSIWYG interfaces that were really things that we developed 40 years ago to communicate to people like what it meant to get stuff from your computer screen onto a sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. And today we're still using that borrowed mental model, that that borrowed metaphor to talk to people about what it means to publish on the web. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that really has animated my career, I I have an earlier book called Content Strategy for Mobile, where I, I really spend a lot of time trying to explain to people why publishing to the web is different, why a web page is not a sheet of paper, and how you really have to think about about separating content from presentation and creating more granular, more structured content in order to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So one one last definition that I want to get out of the way, which is adaptive solutions. Do you want to explain what those are? <laughs> That's the big one. Okay. So I think many people can understand, you know, are, are have adopted the mindset that responsive is a good idea. But a lot of times I'll go into meetings and and even though the team is on board with going responsive, there's still this sense from various stakeholders that, well, we need more than a responsive site. We need it to be adaptive. And the problem with when somebody speaks up and says, hey, we're, we want to use adaptive solutions, is that not only do they not know what it means, but in many cases they are using it as a synonym for magic. So when I, just, when I define adaptive, I, what I usually say is that it's a catch-all term that basically means not responsive. So if your approach to responsive design is essentially to serve the same website to everyone on every device, mm-hmm. in an adaptive solution, what you're, what you're doing is really sending something different. So that might mean that you want to serve a different design to mobile devices versus, versus desktop devices or, or tablet devices, but not sign up for the, the problems associated with serving a completely separate MDOT site. So you want to just adaptively target a certain bit of code or a certain design solution to different devices. Or it might mean that you're serving up different content. So it might mean that I I have talked a lot about adaptive content as a way to personalize the experience or provide contextual content or provide device-specific content. People also use the term adaptive in one very specific way to mean what I like to call adaptive grids. So a responsive solution uses a completely fluid grid. So at every size screen, the responsive design will fluidly adjust. Adaptive grids snap into place at particular sizes, and those sizes are often device-specific sizes. So someone will look at common screen sizes and say, oh, yeah, let's do 360 and 480 and 760. So 
when people talk about adaptive, particularly in the front-end design and development community, when they talk about adaptive, they often mean adaptive grids. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of definitions for one tiny little word. And <laughs> so really, honest, when, when I talk to people about when they say they want an adaptive solution, I think one of the first things to ask is, well, what do you really mean by that? Yeah. Okay. So if I have an existing site that I want to make it responsive, what, what is like the high-level process that I would go about in doing so? So I think the, the big question there is, how do you want to roll out your responsive solution? So for some sites, if you have a relatively small site, you know, a couple hundred pages, not a very complex content management system, not a lot of stakeholders, you might just be able to go in and redesign it and make the site responsive and not, not have it be a particularly overwhelming or complex challenge. And so lots of companies, like just as, as part of the normal course of business, the normal course of doing a redesign, they would make a site responsive. I work with a lot of large enterprise corporations. And for sites like that, that you know have dozens, if not hundreds of stakeholders, very complex uh, infrastructure running the site, you know, multiple different service layers operating the site, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pages, those sites, you can't just go in and wave your responsive magic wand and, you know, automatically have it, you know, turn into a responsive site. Um, and, you know, I've had some developers come ask me, they're like, can you tell our executives that make going responsive isn't just about beating the website with a media query stick? <laughs> like, we need to make a whole bunch of very complex decisions about cleaning up and paring down our content, figuring out which tasks are most important to the user and prioritizing information differently. We might need to replatform our CMS or we might need to update different transaction flows or really just go in and clean things up and pare things down. Mm-hmm. So I advise companies that as they're thinking about a responsive plan, they really need to think carefully about how they're going to do or how they're going to stage the rollout. So some organizations opt to start with a retrofit. A retrofit is basically they just take the existing desktop website and they drop, you know, they add some fluid grids, they drop in some media queries, but they essentially try to keep the site basically the same as on the desktop. And I'll confess, when I started doing this, I thought that the responsive retrofit was the, easily the worst possible idea that anybody would ever had. Like, <laughs> I thought that the opportunity for companies was to go in and make changes to the website that they really needed to make and just retrofitting it to squish it down so it'll work on smaller size screens doesn't get you the value of a better prioritized streamlined site. Mm-hmm. But I've seen lots of companies actually pull off a responsive retrofit pretty well. So companies like Nationwide Insurance and Marriott have have gone through the retrofit process um, and have found that it's actually delivered a lot of value. The team from Capital One, I think, has a fantastic case study of creating a separate mobile website that didn't meet their needs. 96% of their customers were actively bouncing off the homepage of their MDOT site. <laughs> Ooh, ouch. Ouch. And so they managed to convince the organization that they could retrofit the desktop site, not see any changes to the desktop experience, but also as uh, uh, Mike Finch from Facebook commented to me last week, he was like, they got mobile for free. Mm-hmm. So in those situations, I think if you if teams are wrestling with a tricky political situation, a retrofit might be, might be the right answer. Okay. Kind of on the other end of that, uh, other teams will opt to launch with a long-term beta. Now, this obviously requires a significant amount of effort and, and frankly, cost from the organization, but a, a beta allows them to essentially run both sites in parallel. 
Um, sometimes they will start the beta as a mobile-only responsive site. So they'll keep the desktop site as is, and then start working on their responsive site just for smartphones or just for smartphones and tablets. Mm. But they're essentially running two versions of the site, uh, testing it regularly, doing a lot of A-B tests, a lot of usability tests to demonstrate over time that they have gotten the responsive version of the site to perform as well or better than the, the old desktop site. And then once the data proves that the site is working really well, that responsive site will eventually grow up to overtake the desktop. So that takes a lot more time and effort from an engaged organization, but a company like Fidelity, for example, with millions of engaged users transacting you know, millions or billions of dollars every day through their site, that's not something where they can just go in and flip the switch on a redesign. Right. They really need to take the time to do it right. Still, other sites will opt to start with a section. So they'll pick a section that is say, really friendly to a mobile redesign, like I've talked to some banks that have started with auto loans or student loans, because those are sites that tend to get a lot of mobile traffic. Or they start with a section that has a really engaged group of stakeholders, or they start with a section that they know they want to redesign. And they use that as a sandbox to see how the responsive process works before they then roll it out over the rest of the site. So it's like, I wish I could tell you that there was one right way to do it, but as with everything on the web, there's no one right way to do it. There's only the right way that's going to work for your team and for your problems. Right. Yeah. And the key is to just figure out which way that is then. Yeah. So okay, you cool. got to know your business. Yeah, absolutely. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second. And I want to talk about infragistics. Yeah. If you comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, they have controls for Android, iOS, Windows Phone, Windows 8, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery, HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp charting, gauges, barcodes. It's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done so you can show this to the stakeholders and you know sell your ideas. Yeah, what I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. But uh, what, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you could try again next week. And if you can't wait, they have free demos. So you can try it out for a month, download the demos and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. You know, how difficult is it for me to, to integrate responsive thinking into how I actually develop something from the ground up? You know, I'm, I'm willing to bet that I don't think it should be that difficult. Mm -hmm. That... What I have found in working with all sorts of teams, designers, developers, project managers, stakeholders, I tend to believe that the design and development part is the easy part. That teams, once they wrap their head around some of the unique challenges of using media queries and, and working with fluid grids, 
they don't find that a responsive process is that much more complicated or that much more difficult. And I just genuinely believe that a few years from now, we're not going to be talking about responsive as if it is an option. It's, it's just going to be the way that teams work. And that for the vast majority of the web, every website will be a responsive site. There may be still huge platforms or specific scenarios where some teams invest a lot more in apps or decide to keep going with a separate mobile experience. But I think for the majority of the web, this is just what teams are going to do. And didn't the web, I mean, didn't the web sort of start responsive? I mean, just thinking back like to really, really early websites, I mean, you just sort of had no choice because you would say, you know, before, before CSS, I mean, you just say like, here's my paragraph and here's my data and, and everything did really flow. Um, everybody did happen to have, you know, for the most part, the same screen size, but then we got into this era of, you know, Hey, I, I made this thing that looks really crazy in Photoshop and now I need you to, to replicate it here. And, and it seems like we're just, we're finally like getting back to, um, sort of the original intention of the, um, you know, I shouldn't say of the web, but the, the original intention of HTML. Right. I believe that, that, the web's the, the real benefit of the web is in its flexibility and its fluidity and its accessibility, and that that's what makes the web great. And it naturally wants to work that way. Like I think the web, at its at its heart, wants to be accessible. It wants to fluidly work across devices, and it's only if we break it that we can't do those things well. It's only if we keep trying to treat the web like it's a sheet of paper, and you know have everything be perfectly aligned to a given screen size that things start to break down. So if we, I think if we just embrace the web for what the web wants to be, we don't have to have these problems. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. Yeah. I know you don't talk a whole lot about specific tooling when it comes to uh, responsive development, but are there some tools that uh, you can talk about that embody the intention of re- being responsive? So I think responsive, when I think about it is really, a process that goes hand in hand with prototyping. And while I think teams that have been working more on application design, you know, more heavily transactional apps have had to adopt a more prototyping based culture and a more iterative process a long time ago. I think a lot of teams working on the web really haven't like we still are mocking up Photoshop comps and, and, you know, printing them out as PDFs and handing stakeholders a a deck of PDF screenshots so that they can give feedback. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're going to work responsively, it's time to retire the notion that we can treat the web as if it's a series of screenshots. We have to start embracing a prototyping culture and a more iterative process. So I think the tools that I would talk about are the ones that help teams get there. And I will say, like, I don't believe that any of these tools necessarily have to replace the existing tools that teams use. So I think teams still use Photoshop. I think people sometimes still use Illustrator. But they start to add in new tools, like using InVision or Sketch or other prototyping processes that can maybe get them to something that's a semi-functional prototype a little bit faster. And similarly, I think there's a lot of front-end frameworks, you know, the the bootstraps or the foundations of the world that can make the prototyping process go a lot more smoothly, that they they sort of come built in with some of the patterns that teams need to use in order to to start creating mock-ups or layouts. Mm -hmm. Personally, I believe that there's a lot of downsides for using 
those sorts of frameworks for actual production code. I don't, I don't know if I want to get into that fight right now, but I, <laughs> I think there's some concerns about it. But I think for teams that are looking to do what's called designing in the browser, uh, to get the, get the designs into the browser as quickly as possible and then iterate on those designs in the browser, I think there's tools out there that can help people get to that place a little bit faster. Okay. Um, in your book, you had this, uh, I'm going to call it a cheeky comment. Uh, you said only 14% of users' time is spent in a browser compared with all the time spent in apps. We should just shut the web down. <laughs> so what what should we do with that information? You know, I think that statistic is just completely overblown. That mm-hmm. that comes from a, a researcher some, from a company called Flurry. And I think they come out with it every quarter as some sort of like sky is falling, you know, yeah. users only. The web is work, dead. The web <laughs> is dead. And I mean, first and foremost, I have never seen anybody provide similar statistics for the desktop computer, but mm-hmm. I think users have also spent most of their time historically in apps on their desktop computers. And yet no one has ever seen that as cause for concern. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, I think that when you look at the purpose of the web, um, there was a report that came out from Morgan Stanley earlier this year talking about, uh, Morgan Stanley uh, is represents Google, and so they were trying to promote Google as a stock. And one of the things that they pointed out was that even though apps may see higher and more engaged usage, the web is what provides reach. So the web is like 1.2 times faster, bigger than than apps. Like the number of people using the web is is 1.2 times larger than people who use apps. And that number is growing exponentially. And when you look at what provides inbound traffic, like how how do people find out about something, what provides reach to a business, it's entirely the web. Like no one's, no one uses apps really as a discovery platform. And you might say, well, Karen, what about Facebook or Twitter? Aren't those the primary discovery platforms out there? And my answer to that is, yeah. And what are people using? They're using a browser inside of those apps. Many of these statistics that cite how people spend most of their time in apps don't take into account the amount of time that is spent oh, in an point. app browser. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just a different, you know, it's just using the Facebook frame, but it's actually the, you know, it's actually Safari on the iPhone. Exactly. So I I mean, I think like many people, I think this web versus app fight is just tired. It's like it we're beating a dead horse here. <laughs> web you have to have a website. Like there's no question about that. And that website is going to have to be responsive. Some companies may wish to invest in apps, but as far as I'm concerned, unless you're, you're Facebook or Pandora or Google maps, it's probably not worth it. But you know, if you're, if, if you believe that you have a engaged user base, that's willing to authenticate, it may make sense to create an app for your most passionate, most engaged users, but that in no way, it takes away from the fact from the responsibility that you have to build a website. Mm-hmm. Uh, another quote that you had in your book was uh, creating a good user experience across all devices means uh, presenting less content and more thoughtfully prioritized content. Uh, what were you trying to get at with that? I'm trying to get at the fact that most people's websites look like a garbage dump <laughs> and <laughs> it's time we fixed that. Yeah. I, I think up until this point we have, gotten through some of the difficult stakeholder battles and, you know, unwillingness to prioritize and make decisions by just 
junking up our web pages with a big yeah. cacophony um, of stuff and shoving stuff in the right column. Before you go on, can I read one more quote for you? Absolutely. Because I, I love this. This was actually <laughs> my favorite one. Companies that show their corporate underpants by reflecting their organizational structure and their navigation will struggle to, struggle to make the right choices because decisions will still be grounded in stakeholder power structures rather than in customer needs. I love that. That that was that was my favorite quote in the entire book. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's funny because it's true. Yep, absolutely. I've seen yeah. that time and time again. Yep. So you you see people. I mean, how many meetings have I sat in where there's 40 people in the room, each one of them there for one and only one reason, which is to make an impassioned plea for their thing. They've got mm-hmm. their box, and by gosh, their box has to be above the fold. And where is their box going to be? And that's no way to create a user experience. So I think the real value of mobile, the real value of taking a look at your website through the lens of a smartphone is that you have to make those decisions. You have to make the tough call because you no longer can pretend like everybody's going to look at all the garbage you shoved into the right rail. You've got to figure out, okay, what actually is the most important thing on this on this page or in this site? Mm-hmm. And I, I will say that as a corollary to that, the challenges that we have on mobile with the sites just being too slow, like, you know, pay by the megabyte cellular networks, like the cost to organizations of having really bad performance becomes very clear on mobile devices. And I believe that performance is, a, is first and foremost a content strategy problem. Like, I think there's heroic developers out there doing everything in their power to squeeze every last K of page weight out. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I'm like, why don't you just get all that garbage that nobody wants off your pages? Why don't you take off that stupid picture of a woman smiling at a salad? There's, <laughs> there's so much stuff on the page that doesn't actually need to be there. And if mobile is the lens that forces you to clean that up, then we're going to have a better web for everybody. Yeah, the best example I can think of is is like restaurant sites, right? And everybody everybody likes to point this out because there's usually you're going there, you 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 probably want the phone number, you want their hours, and you want their menu, right? And the menu, like, right? Yeah, that's I, and maybe maybe something else. I, that's all I care about, right? And you usually you go to these things, and and a lot of times they're just they're showing you all this stuff that you just you really don't care about. They're just completely backwards in in what they're presenting versus what the the customer actually wants. And I I saw a great analysis, I think it was in Slate a few years back, where uh, the journalist tried to unpack, he was like, why do restaurant sites suck so much? And looked at how restaurateurs make decisions or how they're, you know, they're experts in their business, but they're not experts at the web. And basically came to the conclusion that mobile was the thing that was going to make restaurants websites better, that that at this moment, they realized that, you know, those flash slideshows and auto playing audio wasn't <laughs> going to get people the information that they needed, which was yeah. the hours and the, the address and the menu. Yeah, exactly. So in the book, you talk about a test and learn culture. So what does that entail? So I think when you think about a prototyping culture, or you think about uh, very common buzzwords, people talk about like agile or lean UX. To me, what that really means is, buzzwords aside, it's about having a culture of decision-making in which you have frequent user studies, you have um, a good grasp of your analytics data. Uh, it may mean that you are doing like re- frequent A-B tests. Um, perhaps it means that you're moving toward a continuous deployment model, where instead of doing big, large-scale redesigns, you are just slowly 
slowly trickling out updates and features constantly over time. But I think it means fundamentally that the organization is grounded in grounded in a process in which they are testing things out and trying to learn from what they find. And that, I mean, when you say that, that all sounds great, right? It's like, oh yeah, of course, that makes total sense. Why would anybody do it any other way? And the truth is that, like I say, we have uh, mental models that are still derived from print. I think a lot of our processes are still based in what I might call a print mindset, where it's like, you know, you, everybody rushes to get the magazine done and then you send the magazine to the printer and then you can't make any more changes to the magazine. Yep. Or, you know, you're thinking about processes that might be based in architecture or fashion design or any other process, any other manufacturing processes that, you know, require heavy upfront work and planning to get to a big cutoff point after which changes can no longer be made and or changes become extremely expensive to make. Mm-hmm. And the web just doesn't work that way. And I think it's a cultural challenge more than it is a technical challenge to get people to work in a more iterative fashion. Like I've talked to publishers on the web that as they moved to a responsive process, they started showing prototypes and they would show work in progress prototypes. And that was so anathema to the way that they would work in print. And they had, you know, editors or very senior people at the publisher who were simply not accustomed to looking at things that were half done. (laughs) And so it's, you know, I, I think it, while a test and learn culture is a, it sounds great. It is great. I'm also very sympathetic to the challenges that, that companies face in, getting people who have worked one way for their entire career to now have to provide feedback and look at work in a completely different context. That's not easy. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think another good example of this is Microsoft with their Windows Insider program. Uh, They were showing to the public actual builds way earlier than they had done in the past. And I, I think it made a lot of people scared. Uh, a lot of people were questioning if Microsoft even knew how to make software, seeing software that was in such rough shape. Yeah. So they're like, they're never going to be able to ship this. <laughs> no one so likes to look I, at the sausage getting made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So another thing that I think of when I think of responsive side uh, development is having something that's quick. So what is the cost of having a slow site and how do we convince our stakeholders that uh, this speed is worth investing in? I think if I were advising a company right now about where to invest their effort, I would say put it all on making your site faster. Like I, I had somebody come up to me after a conference and you know he said, we've already gone responsive. So we have a responsive site. What should we do next? Should we... You know, should we move into adaptive solutions? Is it personalization? Is it contextual targeting? And I, you know, I was like, look, before you do any of that, I want you to tell me that your site is like twice as fast as your nearest competitor. And if it's not, put all your energy there. Hmm. Because I think that the, the, the hidden cost to companies of users abandoning the site or not making it, not fully transacting on the site because the site is too slow is incredibly high. Study after study after study shows that users will abandon the site after just one to two seconds of delay, three seconds for sure. You know, and it's like you realize how painful it is to browse the web on your phone where every page takes seconds, you know, three or three seconds to load. Mm -hmm. You just give up. 
It's not worth yep. it. Absolutely. And so the value that companies can get from really investing in performance, I think, pays off in spades. I think it just it it is one of the most worthwhile things that a company can do. Not just because it it's a technical challenge, but because it, as I said before, it is a is a content challenge. So if you really make every single thing on the site earn its keep, if you really ensure that everything that's there needs to be there and you know it needs to be there because you know it provides value to the user, and then you can use that to plan how your pages load. So I think improving perceived performance is a much bigger deal than improving actual performance. Yeah, so that's what, you that know, was the next thing I was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, users perceive sites to be faster if they can get in and start completing their tasks. And there's a whole bunch of tricks that developers can employ to make sites feel faster. There's little interface tricks. Like uh, I, you may notice on sites like, like, uh, Facebook or on Slack, when they load, they will sort of preload something that looks like the site. It's like a ghost version of the site. And that makes you feel like something's happening. So you don't get as frustrated as you might if you were just sitting there looking at a blank screen. But all of those little interface tricks pale in comparison to ensuring that the way the site renders enables users to get to the content or complete the tasks that they want to complete as, as fast as possible, even if it means that stuff further down the page or stuff that isn't as important to the user's task is still loading. So things like those little social widgets, you know, the little Facebook icons and Twitter icons, mm-hmm. they look so tiny and yet they're so heavy because there's all sorts of third-party server calls and all of the analytics tracking that's attached to them, those can really slow down page rendering or cause kind of janky page rendering. And, you know, if you don't plan how your page is going to load, those things can hold up page rendering and make the site feel really slow. But smart developers can ensure that those things load later so that the user can start interacting with the stuff that matters most first. And the only way you're going to do that, actually, is is by having a really clear content strategy and a clear understanding of the desired user experience. You've got to know what's most important to the user, so you could put that first. So how different, it, how different is the design process when we're doing responsive design? Well, I think that I would say that the biggest difference is this process that people call designing in the browser. And I, I will give a shout out to Dan Mall. He, I think, sort of famously quipped that we should change the phrase designing in the browser to deciding in the browser. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. So most of the teams that I talk to still report that they use Photoshop or Illustrator. Like designers haven't given up the, the tools that are at the core, have been at the core of their workflow for 15 years now. But what it does mean is that even though they might make still make a desktop comp or many teams are starting to slowly report that they are now starting with the mobile comp and maybe only showing a mobile comp teams do that as quickly as possible and then get it into the browser as quickly as possible. So they don't treat the comp as if it is some pixel perfect rendering that must be, you know, represented with exact fidelity once you get it into the browser. They treat it as a sketchy starting point that then they get it into the browser and they start tweaking it and 
you know, fixing things so that as you move from the smallest possible size to the largest possible size and you work through all of those awkward teenage haircut sizes, you can get things to flow correctly. And it's really hard to do that in any way other than actually in the browser. So that does change the way that teams work. But, you know, I think that's something that most teams pretty readily wrap their heads around. Mm -hmm. I think what it changes actually is the way that teams give feedback, the way that they share those prototypes with the rest of the organization. Um, you know, one of the things that I run into a lot is it's challenging to gather feedback from a large group of stakeholders when you're trying to get feedback on, on across a range of different breakpoints, a range of different screen sizes. It means that you have to coach, coach your stakeholders to look at things in different devices or, you know, show them how to drag their browser window closed. And it means that they have to be able to give feedback about the priority and the layout of different objects as they reflow across different screen sizes. And that means that they need new language or new terminology and maybe even new tools with which to give that feedback. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I first heard about responsive design, I think it was, you know, like four or five years ago, approximately. And um, I'm just kind of curious, like, has there, has, has it really evolved over that time? Has it just sort of become more refined? I mean, like, what is the, what is the difference today, you know, comparing it to a couple of years ago? I think one big shift that I've seen a lot and Ethan Marcotte, who wrote, his seminal responsive web design article, I think in 2010, one of the things that he will comment on is that back when we first started talking about responsive, there was this sense that we would aim responsive designs or aim the breakpoints for the responsive design at particular screen sizes. Okay. So he describes his process for the Boston Globe as, you know, they went out and they looked at their analytics data and they figured out what the most common screen sizes were. And then they sort of aimed their breakpoints and aimed their design process at those screen sizes. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about the mobile web, you realize that even a handful of the most commonly used screen sizes is a completely inaccurate rendering representation of the true device landscape. The sheer variety of different Android devices and different Android screen sizes is mind boggling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even in the iOS landscape today, you've got you know, ever more screen sizes than you ever imagined possible. So one big shift is that teams have moved away from talking about breakpoints and responsive designs as being defined by screen sizes and now talk about it as being defined by the content. So rather than teams thinking about device sizes at all, like I think one of the things that I would encourage people to do is not talk about device types at all when you're planning a responsive design. Okay. You should instead be thinking about breakpoints as something that gets defined by the content. So when a line length gets too long or when white space gets too big or when things just start to feel awkward, then that's where you put in a breakpoint. Like, you know, I think Stephen Hay has said, like, he's like, yeah, you open up your browser window and it, when it starts to look like shit, you put in a breakpoint. Yeah. <laughs> so... I think that that mindset of really being truly device agnostic, like not talk really yeah. endeavoring not to talk about device types at all. Like this isn't the tablet size of the website. This might be the medium size of the website or the mama bear size of the website. Yeah. That discipline is something that I think has emerged over the last few years. And I think it's very important because yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, people have six inch phones and, 
you know, six inch tablets, you know, there's right. It's <laughs> true. It, just using like a, a common definition just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. There's, there isn't necessarily a difference between a tablet and a, and a, um, and a phone or, you know, a laptop. I mean, it's just, everything is converging. Everything is overlapping. So you're, you're totally right. I mean, talking in those terms, just, it just makes zero sense. I think that when you talk about device types, those come bundled with all sorts of assumptions about scenarios of use or capabilities of the device. So if you talk about a smartphone, you're, you're sort of subconsciously thinking about people using touch or people using it while they're on the go. And that may not actually be true of a given screen size. Mm -hmm. So I might have a six inch smartphone that you know, I use in different contexts or in different ways, or, you know, there may be all sorts of scenarios under which someone's using a given screen size, but it's not touch enabled, or it is touch enabled, or it has low bandwidth, or it has high bandwidth. And getting away from talking about device types helps ensure that you're not, t- not making those assumptions about what the what the capabilities of the device actually are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really great as we're looking forward, we don't know what the next generation of devices are. Right. I, cur- I currently have a six inch phone that I use with touch all day long, but at night I'll hook a, a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse to it and project it that same device to my large screen TV. Right. If you're detecting that I have a phone, you're losing out on the fact that I have uh, a 48 inch TV. Yeah. yeah. Do you, do you run into that much, Carl? That's actually, that's actually a really good point. Like does it send over, what does it send over in the, uh, in the user agent? So the user agent still looks like it's on on a phone. You can tell detect that it's a phone. <laughs> oh, and 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 some sites give me their M dot sites. That's and hilarious. Yeah, you I, could, like you said, a, a fifty inch screen, and you're getting an M dot site. Yeah, that's terrible. Wow. Okay, that's crazy. Yeah. So other than these like new devices and capabilities, like I mentioned, you know, I wanted to look back. You know, tailing off of uh, Jason's previous question is how different is the landscape of the internet? now compared to what it was when responsive design was first conceived? You know, I think probably the biggest and most important thing that we should all continually be aware of is the growth of internet use in the developing world or the growth of internet use by people who will never have had a desktop computer. Uh, McKinsey, a study from McKinsey that came out last year estimated that in the next 10 years, between two and three billion people globally will come online who will be able to get online through, you know, get on the internet from a smartphone who would never have had access to the internet before. And that to me, I think is, is one of the most powerful changes in human society. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean to make it seem like I think the internet solves world problems. I think we have a lot of problems out there that the internet's not going to fix, but I think for, for, People across the world, um, so much will change because they have access to the web. And so to really think about producing a web that works for them, that works in low bandwidth situations, that works on less capable devices, and to think of the types of devices that we use as the enhancement. Like, you know, we get the additional features because we can support it, but at the core, the web should be available to... Uh, to the weakest signals. And I think if I, you know, if I, as I think about what's changed on the web in the 20 years that I've been, been working on the web, I think this is probably the biggest change that, that I'll see in my lifetime. And it's one that I think is enormously uh, 
I guess it's, it's enormously inspiring to me to think about what it means to get the web to people who never would have had it before. Yeah. Yeah. And in so many ways, I mean, there's obviously the, there's the business aspect, there's the, the personal aspect. Yeah. It's, that's, that's huge. <laughs> and even in this country, I think, yeah. you know, we sometimes treat it as if this is an issue with the developing world, but mm. there are tens of millions of Americans that do not have access to a desktop computer, will never have a broadband connection. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think we can assume that for the vast majority of Americans, a smartphone will become just absolutely one of the most basic staples of human life. I think yeah. what we'll see is that, you know, 90, what, like 95% of the American population will have a, have a mobile device. Like everyone has a phone. Yeah. Even my, my 11 year old, he's like, a lot of kids in my class have a cell phone. I, I need a cell phone. Dad. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> I mean, I already have this issue where I, I have, you know, I have this massive network in my house just because I have to manage so many devices. And now, you know, it's, it's going to turn into phones with my kids and uh, that, you know, they always talk about it being, you know, like a million dollars to like raise a kid. Well, I figured out where that money is. It's, it's in like <laughs> cellular services and Wi-Fi and devices. <laughs> I'm going to have to have like a MDM solution just for, for my household, like get Microsoft Intune or something. Um, anything else that you wanted to cover that we might have skipped over or you wanted to dive into uh, more deeply? No, this has been a fantastic set of questions. Yeah. And if, if your readers, if your listeners enjoyed this conversation, I cover a lot of these topics and even more in my book, Going Responsive, which is available from abookapart.com. Yeah, no, that it was, that was, um, uh, it was, it was a great book and the, uh, we bought the ebook version and it was, it was very reasonably priced. And like I said, I would, I would buy one for all of the various stakeholders. I mean, even if you're, if you're a, just a developer that's doing this day to day, buy a whole bunch of copies of this and just hand them out to to the stakeholders. And I, I think I think you'll see a, a good response in your in your organization. Uh, okay, um, Carl doesn't have an app or a dev tip of the week, but uh, I'm just carrying the uh, I'm carrying the show here with uh, with an Azure. <laughs> Thanks, pick of Jason. The week. <laughs> After I had what like four episodes of no Azure pick of the week. Uh, so my pick of the week is the Azure Load Balancer. Um, so this is actually real simple, but I, you know, I look back at all the picks that I've had in the previous episodes, and we sort of skip some of the the fundamentals. So I wanted to just, you know, have a couple in a row here that were just on fundamentals. So whenever you, uh, whenever you get into the world of cloud and you have, you know, multiple servers or, or multiple services, um, what ends up happening is you you ultimately get this free load balancer in, in front of that. So if you create in Azure, two virtual machines, um, and you put them within the same what's called a, a cloud service, or if you use the Azure Resource Manager, if you, um, you know, then you're sort of um, referencing this thing explicitly. You get this load balancer in front of it, which gives you an endpoint. So you come in uh, to that endpoint. That's like your public URL or public IP address. It will automatically load balance between those uh, two virtual machines, which is a really neat feature. Um, and you can set up the ports and all that kind of stuff. It's not just port 80. Uh, it's super flexible. And the cost is the best part. So it's uh, absolutely free. So it's just something that you automatically get in front of there. And it will handle however many servers that you have behind it. And uh, yeah, it's just something in the cloud. It's funny. We, we take it for granted. Uh, whenever you're doing on-prem stuff, I mean, a load balancer is a big deal. 
Um, you know, if you do a software load balancer, a hardware load balancer, like I don't even know how to do that on-prem. Um, I don't know where I would start in trying to figure out how to do that. But in the cloud, it's free. And uh, you might have even created one without even thinking about it. Because if you create a virtual machine, uh, you're automatically going to have one in front of it. Uh, so that was my Azure pick of the week. We're going to skip the uh, the card game question of the week because I'm traveling and I just uh, didn't even think to bring it with me. So uh, sorry about that. Uh, so Karen, you know, you mentioned that people can buy the book at A Book Apart. Um, where can people find more about you and uh, and about your work? So if they want to know more about me, they can go to karenmcgrain.com and mm-hmm find out about everything I've been doing in some of my talks. And if they're interested in more about responsive web design, they can go to responsivewebdesign.com. Ethan Marcotte and I host a podcast on responsive design, and we also do workshops and training with companies. We have a newsletter. So responsivewebdesign.com is everything you need to find out a little bit more about that. And everybody should go to karenmcgreen.com and take a look at her picture. I just love this because it's like, I don't even know how to describe this. Like you're, you're rolling your eyes. Like <laughs> it's, it's just this, that picture is just amazing. That's <laughs> my personal brand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're just, you're just like, ah, oh, this, you know, what is with people? <laughs> okay. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at wpdoveguy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Karen, thanks again so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And I learned a ton about responsive design. Thank you. Now it's been my pleasure. You guys are a blast to talk to. 